The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the, the Word of Christ. You've heard about it this morning as, we re- as Ryan read uh, Romans chapter 10. There's an incredible line in there. It's not always translated the same, but basically what it says is, how can they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how can they hear him unless there is a preacher, there is someone who proclaims the truth about him? Now, you may want to go into the Bible tossing ministry after you heard that story, but make sure you, you, get, you use a little bitty Bible like that. <clears throat> don't, uh, don't use something like this. This would hurt. But the Word of Christ and hearing the Word of Christ is the greatest life-changing experience that you'll ever have. When your ears are open to the Word of Christ, it's the most amazing thing. Well, I want, to, I want you to turn with me in, uh, in Luke chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 31 and then read down through chapter 5. Listen to this account. Jesus, as we remember, has moved down into Galilee, to Capernaum. And so in verse 31, it says, And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. His message was with authority. The word message here is talking about the content of what he said. It isn't talking about his delivery. I'm sure that was incredibly powerful too, but it was the message that he brought them, the logos, the word that he brought them. It was with authority. The word of God has authority because it is the word of Christ. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, we have several of these incidents where demons speak directly to Jesus, and you wonder why doesn't he uh, accept their testimony about him? Because their testimony about him, a demon's testimony about Jesus, isn't a good thing. And so he tells him to be quiet. Jesus rebuked him, verse 35, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits that they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home, Now, Simon's mother-in-law, this is Peter, of course, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. I read this to my wife this past week. I said, you get the message here? When Jesus touches your life, the kind of impact it has... And then in verse 40, while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hand on them, his hands on them, on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many shouting, you are the son of God. 
But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ, the Messiah. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him. And he came to him, they came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea, that is throughout the area of the Jews. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat, For them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that he he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. These are professional fishermen. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing. I do desire to do this. Be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him, in front of Jesus. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? It was a blasphemy for him to say, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But, to, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately, he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. After he went out and noticed a tax collector. He went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors, probably the most despised group of people in this culture at this time, and other people who were reclining at table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is still with him, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. That's the days we're living in, by the way. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And then a verse I've never even rec- I never even noticed before, verse 39, the last verse in this pericope. He says, And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, The old is good enough. <laughs> in this passage, what we see is the power and authority of Jesus' message. Now, as I said, he was probably a very powerful speaker, but that's not what's being spoken of here. It's talking about his message, the content of what he was saying. And notice in verse 38, I think it is, he says, uh, 36, 36, what is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. With authority and power, you notice he, we have six different short stories of what happens when Jesus communicates his message. The first is he speaks with authority and power as he commands the demons in verses 31 through 37, which we read. In verse 33, it says that this man was possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. Many have asked, and you probably have had people discuss this with you, can a believer be demon-possessed? Well, I believe the answer is no. Why not? Because in 1 John 5.18, it says that Jesus delivers us from Satan and his minions. He cannot touch us. The word touch means he can't take hold of us and keep us and hold us. 
And so, no, I don't believe that, that believers can be demon-possessed. There's another word that's used in the New Testament about be- demonic activity, and that is oppression. It means to cause serious trouble to someone. Can demons do this? Probably so. But we have a deliverer, and his message is one of authority and power, and he w- can command spirit beings to do what he wants them to do. And so the one that we serve has power over all. In fact, I want to have you turn back to Matthew chapter 12 for just a second, if you would, just to give you a little exercise in finding verses. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Matthew 12, 22. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. Now, this isn't just uh, antiquity with their foolish ideas that all sickness is caused by demons. What's going on in the Gospels is a war between the king of the kingdom of God and Satan himself and his minions. And Jesus demonstrates his power when he casts out demons, when he heals the sick, when he raises the dead. Those things are not just fanciful stories. They're accounts of what Jesus had done. They're, they're eyewitness accounts of what Christ had done. And what he was doing was he was demonstrating his authority. And so when we're told in Colossians that we were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, it means we came out from the rule of Satan and we are now under the rule of Jesus Christ who sets us free. So this demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. That's That's a great demonstration of power, isn't it? All the crowds were amazed, and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees, his enemies, and the reason they were his enemies was he was a threat to them. They were the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and Jesus comes along proclaiming a new covenant, And it was going to do away with the old covenant. It was going to supersede it. And so they felt threatened by Jesus. And so when the Pharisees heard this, they heard people saying, could he be the son of David? That is, could he be the Messiah? This is what they said. This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, which is a word for Satan, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus was demonstrating his power and his authority. Back in in Luke chapter 4, so this demon-possessed man had this demon cast out of him by Jesus Christ. You know, when you're in trouble, you need to again expose yourself to the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, You've heard this said many times, you ought to be preaching the gospel to your own heart continually. You need to be telling yourself the truth. Most of you talk to yourself, although if I asked you that, you'd probably say, no, I don't do that. Most of us do. We talk to ourselves. And we reaffirm what we believe. There was a study done not too long ago this past year about why is it that people have opinions that when they are confronted with facts that are against this opinion, they only want to listen to affirmations of their opinions. And in this study, they were trying to figure out why this was true. 
And what they said was, is that physiologically, when you read something that affirms what you already believe, it actually produces an effect in your brain, produces dopamine, and makes you feel better. And isn't it like that? Well, when we find ourselves wandering, we need to reaffirm the message of Jesus Christ. We don't, we're not Christians based on our authority. We have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have come to commit ourselves and submit ourselves to him and his rule because we have great confidence in him. This is the king of glory, the high king of heaven, and we live under his rule. So in 1 Peter 5, it says that when you're going through times of persecution and Satan is trying to defeat you and discourage you, He says, you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. In other words, realize that the circumstances of your life are in the control of the living God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, humble yourself under his mighty hand and he will exalt you at the the right time. How do you do that? Well, he tells us in the next verse. He says, you do this by casting your anxieties on him because it matters to him about you. It matters to him about you. This is one of the hardest messages to get through the heart, our hearts as believers is God's love for us and Christ's love for us. Because we read our circumstances in such a way that we're wondering if God is angry with us. Has he turned his back on us? Has he left us alone? No. No, he is faithful to his people. And so we need to rethink and rehear the very message of Jesus Christ. In the next picture we have, we see that he speaks with authority over the powerless. Now I say powerless because he's talking about the case of uh, Simon's mother-in-law who fell sick with a fever. And she was sick. And the word sick here, asthenel, means to be weakened. So you can't function. You know how that is. We've had a lot of people in the congregation have had the flu or the bad colds this last couple of, of months. And you get the place you just don't feel like you can carry on life as normal. Well, this is being in a weakened state. And so what Jesus does is he speaks his message to Simon's mother, and she is healed, and she's raised up. Now we're told in uh, Romans 8, 26, that the Spirit helps our weakness. And then he tells us what our weakness is all the time. Our weakness is we don't know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes to God. And then God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Which means, no, he doesn't answer every one of your prayers. He doesn't deliver you the way you want him to deliver you every time. But what he says is that because the Spirit is interceding for you, God is responding by working everything in your life together for this good purpose of conforming you into the image of Christ. God has a plan, and he's working that plan out in your life. And so in this part of this passage, Jesus demonstrates the authority of his message over the powerless. Now, you may not be sick, but you, may, you certainly may feel powerless in this world for one reason or another. Jesus Christ has the power to work in your life, to bring about wholeness and the ability to serve him and walk with him in the way he has called you. And then there's a transition here. Uh, in verses 42 through 44, listen to what it says. When they came, Jesus left 
and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Wow. They were so impacted by his message that they wanted him to stay and tell them more. But Jesus had gone away to pray, and they went and sought him out and found him. And he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities. The reason he's preaching the kingdom of God is the king has come. He's in their presence, and he is displaying his power and his authority in what he does and says. And so he wants them to hear that and to know that. Now, the next, in the, this next section, we see that his authority and power in his message is exercised over the called. Over the called. Well, see what I mean? Look at verse chapter 5, verse 1 again. It happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake, uh, Lake Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, a large lake. Not large, in our, it isn't near as big as Lake Tahoe, but it was large to them. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake fishing boats. These men had been out fishing, and now their boats were there at the side of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's, which is the name that Jesus gives him. And he asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and he began teaching the people from the boat. This would be a great place to preach from. If we had a lake, we could preach from the boat because the sound would resonate off of the water. Because Jesus tells him to let your nets down for a catch, and Simon says, we worked hard all night and we haven't caught a thing. But I'll do what you say, and he let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. Ever experienced that? So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said what you would probably say too. He said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is exactly what every time you find a man in the presence of God, this is the kind of thing he says. Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. You couldn't send me. Then God purifies his mouth, and and Isaiah says, send me, Lord. And so Peter here is saying, you need to get away from me. I'm a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. They saw this as supernatural. These fishermen had fished all night. They were seasoned, experienced fishermen. They caught nothing. And now Jesus simply says, throw your net out on the other side, and they catch a large catch. They can't even draw it in by themselves. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, we know what that means. When you first read it out of its context, say, what in the world is he talking about? Is he going to be a bounty hunter? No, he's going to be a gospelizer. He's going to preach the gospel and he's going to catch men by proclaiming the message of Christ to men. And they're going to come to faith in Christ. But as you know, Peter became a failure. On the night that Jesus was arrested, the night before he was crucified, Peter denies him three times. Now, Peter was the one who had confessed that when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. 
The Father revealed that to you. He was, he, that, was, that was a message. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the message that all of us... Now, I'm, there has to be explanation of it, but this is, this is our message, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's through Christ that we can come into a relationship with the living God and have our sins forgiven and be given new life. And so Peter denies Christ, but the final scene in the book of John is when Jesus confronts Peter on the Sea of Galilee, probably the same location. And what Peter has done, because he's so discouraged, and you'd be discouraged too, he had denied Christ three times. And so when they, he had told his disciples, I'll meet you at the Sea of Galilee. And so they went there, and Jesus wasn't there yet. And so guess what happens? Peter, whom Christ called here to become a fisher of men and no longer a fisher of fish, Peter decides he's going to go fishing. Because he totally failed at fishing for men, he had denied the Savior who he was supposed to be proclaiming. And so he goes out into the water and goes fishing, and the other disciples follow him. So here are the 12 that Jesus had selected and called to become fishers of men and no longer be fishers of fish, and yet they're out there fishing. And guess what happens? They've tried everything, but they can't catch a thing. And so when Jesus comes up, they don't know it's him. He's on the shore, and they're out a ways. They don't know that it's him. And so he calls out to them, children, have you caught any fish? No. And he said, cast your net on the other side. And immediately John, the beloved disciple, says to Peter, it's the Lord. So Peter, you can imagine the kind of guilt that he was carrying. He dives in the water and walks to shore, swims and walks to shore. And he comes to meet Jesus. And you know the encounter. Jesus asked him three times. He had, he had denied Christ three times. And so G Jesus restores him by asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? And the first time he asked him is, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, there's debate over what that means. More than these men love me or more than these things? And it's hard to know because in the grammatical structure, it could either be things or men. But if it's things, he's asking him, do you love these things, your old way of life, more than you love me? And Peter responds three times, I love you, Lord. Yes, I love you. And and Jesus tells him, then feed my sheep, tend to my lambs, feed my, shepherd my sheep. And he restores him. Now, this happens to us at times where God gives us a real desire to serve him. Uh, Peter, of course, had become quite discouraged because he had failed so miserably. And Jesus restores him. And he preaches his word to him. He calls him and his authoritative word to him is manifest in the fact that he follows Jesus. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. He left everything. Notice verse 11. Peter, strong-willed, says they, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, left everything and followed him. You remember the story about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, He's a young Jewish man. He's a very devout in his keeping the law and so forth. And he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus says, you know the law. He says, yes, I've kept the commandments since I was a small child. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Now, why did he do that? Because Jesus can see the heart. And so he knows what's in the heart of this young man. And he says to him, you, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now, the point is, is that Jesus, the, the power of the word, the message of Jesus is such that he calls people to give up everything they have in order to follow him. Now, that's kind of rare in our culture. We live in America where you can be a Christian and have everything that you already possess. You have to give up nothing. Now, that's not true, is it? It's not really true. When you start following Jesus, you're going to discover there are things that you must not pursue because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. And he has the power to call, and he has the power to change the heart and so when he, when he calls uh, Peter, Peter responds and believes. And so did to, to the sons of Zebedee. And then notice the next section in verses 12 through 16, the defiled. And this is a leper. A leper. Now, leprosy was the kind of disease that was horrible. And you've seen some, probably some video and pictures and so forth, how terrible it can be. But the other part of it was a man with leprosy could not participate in the worship of God with the other worshipers of God. He, had, he was banned from any kind of interaction with people because of the contagiousness of his disease. And so this man comes to Jesus. In verse 12, it says, while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. It, it means filled. As the word covered is filled, filled with leprosy. His, you could see immediately that he was leprous. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, which means if you are pleased, if you desire, you can make me clean. That's faith. He understood. He had seen Jesus heal others. He knew he could heal him. And he stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. That's the one thing you never do with the leper. You never reach out and touch them. And yet Jesus reaches out and touches him, saying, I am willing, I do desire, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but to, to go and show himself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them that you've been cleansed. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. I hope you, get, you keep hearing that phrase because he keeps repeating it. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. This is an amazing thing. This is the eternal son of God. But he's become an incarnate son of God. He's come into the world. He has a real human nature. He's humbled himself and taken on the form of a servant. And so now he feels the need to pray to the Father. So where does that leave me and you? Have you noticed that our prayers often just become lists 
They're like grocery list prayers. I have 15 things I want God to do. That's not the kind of praying that we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is worshipful prayer. We come to him and worship him through the word of God. In fact, it's a good practice to pray through the Scriptures. As you read the Scriptures, pray in response. Give God thanks for what he has done and what he has promised. And call upon him to fulfill his promises to you. But prayer is primarily worship. It's a, a child turning to his father, giving him thanks, and asking him to meet our needs. You don't have to take a class to learn how to pray. The best thing to do is hang around believers who pray. Get together with some believers to pray. And if you don't know anybody like that, let's say you're just so isolated, you don't know any other Christians who pray, then what you should do is you should start praying. Get on your knees before God. Yes, it's okay to get on your knees. There's nothing unbiblical about that, unless you have an artificial knee and you can't stand your weight. But if you can get on your knees before the Lord, open the scriptures, begin to read, and pray in response to the word of God. Worship him. And as you worship him, what will, fill, what will fill your heart? God will fill your heart with these desires to see things accomplished in the lives of others and in your own life. And then start inviting people to come and pray with you. We need to be a praying church. We are in desperate need of God to do the supernatural in our lives. We need God to work. I'm not just talking about we have people in the in the in the church family that have diseases and sickness of different kinds, that they need God to intervene and to heal. But there are many other needs. I need to start learning how to love people the way God loves people. And so do you. We need to learn how to forgive. And so we can pray for these things. You read Ephesians 4, and you start reading about how we are to live, and you say, wow, I don't live like that. Start praying. Start praying that God will fulfill his word in you. His word is powerful. I love this appeal that this, this leprous, lep, the man with leprosy makes. If you are willing, you can make me clean. You know, God is more willing to give than we are willing to ask. Jesus' response is, I am willing. I do desire it. Be cleansed. He spoke with power and authority. Has he ever done that in your life? Absolutely. You came to faith in Christ because, you, did you notice in, in Romans 9, it says, in Romans 10 rather, it says, how can they believe in him whom they have not heard? Now there's the, the expression there because of the grammar, some, it's sometimes translated about whom. But more probably, he's saying, how can you believe on the, on the one you've never heard? Have you ever heard Jesus? No, I've never heard his voice audibly. But he says, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Without somebody who's declaring, and he's not talking about professional preachers. He's talking about someone who communicates the word of God to other believers. Has anybody ever, yes, somebody has told you about Christ. And that's why, that's how you've heard him. Because he has spoken through his witnesses to you. And you responded in faith. And then in verses 17 through 26, he speaks authoritatively with power here over the guilty. And notice how this is phrased. Verse 17, over the guilty. Verse 17, 
one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. You know the story. They come to the house where Jesus is teaching, but it's so crowded. And a lot of the crowd is our Pharisees. Why are they there? They are there because they don't believe in him, and they want to get proof that he's a phony and a false witness. And so Jesus is teaching, and they try to bring this man who can't walk into Jesus so Jesus will pray for him and then be healed. And so what do they do? Well, they did what you couldn't do at your house. They pulled the tiles off the roof and let him down through the hole right in the front of Jesus on his bed of affliction. They lower him down right in front of Jesus. And it says in verse 20, seeing their faith. How did he see their faith? You can't see faith. How did Jesus see their faith? Well, they saw what they did, that they trusted him so much to heal this man, they were willing to bring him and carry him and let him down through the roof right in before him so that Jesus could speak the authoritative word to heal him. And Jesus, seeing their faith, the faith of those who brought him, said to him, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Well, he didn't ask him to forgive his sins. He hadn't asked him anything yet. He's Lord right down before Jesus, and Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. So the scribes and Pharisees, the enemies of Jesus, began to reason, saying, who does this guy think that he is? He's speaking blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus answers them. Now, they haven't said it. They're thinking this. And Jesus says, aware of their reasonings. This is what they're reasoning in their minds. And Jesus, knowing what they're reasoning, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Well, you could say your sins are forgiven, and, and uh, the people listening to you wouldn't know whether the sins were forgiven or not, because you can't see forgiveness of sins. Now, you could begin to see the effects. But he says, which is easier to say? Well, get up and walk is a harder thing to say because that means that they're going to see whether he has the power to heal this man. But so that you may know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns this to paralytic and he says, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before them, picked up what had been, he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Amazing, they didn't believe on him, these Pharisees and scribes. They saw the power of the kingdom being manifested in the person of Christ, the king. And then there's one last story here. It's found in verses 27 through 29. Notice what it says. This is the rejected. You see what I say, why I say rejected. After that, he went out and he noticed. It says here that Jesus noticed Levi. I mean, think of this. This is the, this is the God of the universe. This is, John says everything that was created was created by him, and not anything that was created came into being apart from him. But he notices Levi. 
Now, you've got to understand, the reason I say he's the rejected is because he's a tax collector. A tax collector in Israel at this time was a function of the Roman government, and this man was an agent of the Roman government. And not only that, he made his money by charging what he wanted to, paying Rome what they demanded, but keeping the rest for himself. How would you like to know that the, the person that you pay taxes to kept whatever he wanted? He paid, let's say you, you, owe, you actually owed $1,000 in taxes, and he charges you $3,000, and he keeps 2000 So they were hated. They were rejected by the Jews. Now, Levi is a Jew, but Levi is a tax collector. But Jesus notices him. And what does he say to him? He says, what? Follow me. And he left everything behind. He left everything behind, and he began to follow him. Levi, Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at table with him. He's already begun to bear witness, invite his friends to come over and see Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling. They're there too. They began grumbling at his disciples. Why do you eat? Why don't you fast like the disciples of John or like the Pharisees? Why don't you practice religion the way they do? Why don't you practice religion instead of just believing on Jesus? The, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink, they're telling Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you, not, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? No, you can't. But the days will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he's also telling them a parable. Now, the last thing on here that we see is, first of all, th this is an amazing thing. that I, I've heard Christians say this in our Bible study before. It's like we're, we read it kind of like this. They go, how could they be so blind? How could they be so blind? They saw him perform miracles. They heard his word. How could they not bow down and worship him as the Son of God? The same way you did not do it until the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. And so the question is, why do some choose to resist Jesus' authority and refuse his blessings? Well, he gives the answer in verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. And he was telling them a parable. The parable is the answer to this question, why is it that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others refused to believe on Christ to the point that they murdered him? Why did they refuse his blessings? So he tells this parable. And here's the parable. Now, a parable is a story. It's a picture of something that's going to explain something else. It, parabole just means lay down alongside of, or throw down alongside of. This is the story that explains the situation. He begins telling this, this parable. He says, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. Have you women ever done that? You buy a new dress so you can cut off a piece of the dress and put it on an old dress that's worn out and got holes in it? No. He says, otherwise he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins because of its expansion 
and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. Now, of course, what he's saying is, what you're hearing from him is new. It's the new covenant. Now, what that is to be compared with is not just the old covenant, but whether with their distortion of the old covenant. The Pharisees and scribes, they had distorted the old covenant. They turned it into a religion of works. They had manipulated the system to the place where they felt perfectly comfortable with the system. Their lifestyle, as far as they were concerned, met up with all the requirements and standards that God demanded. And Jesus says, the problem is, the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And that's what he was preaching. He was preaching what God was about to give them, which he had promised all the way back in the Old Testament, hundreds of years beforehand, that when the Messiah came, a new covenant would be instituted with his people, and he would put his, he would give them a new heart, and he would put the Spirit in them. They would be changed in the deepest part of who they were. But then, I had never noticed this before, but notice verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for the new. For he says, the old is good enough. Good enough, the word good enough here, Christos, means something pleasant and easy. Pleasant and easy. The Pharisees had so manipulated the system that they found it pleasant and easy. And so Jesus was a threat to them because he says, you must repent and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But they like the old system. It's like people who get into a religion of some kind that they really learn how to do and how to practice it. They become very comfortable with it and then they hear the gospel and they like the old wine better. Loanida, who's a, it's a, a lexicon that gives translators of the scriptures around the world help in translating. They, they said, you have to translate this word, which is, which is translated here in the New American Standard. The old is good enough. The, that phrase, good enough. They said, you really, Christos, you have to translate the, the best way to translate this. The old wine causes the tongue to sing. It's so good because it was created by them. It was a manipulation of God's glorious plan under the law, and they had some completely distorted it. Now, what happens when the gospel comes to people who are practicing a religion, it's an affront. This is what's happening with the bogues, what they're facing. They're, they're finding out what it's like to, to try to witness to someone who has a religion that they find totally satisfying because they've learned how to practice it. And what you're offering them is something brand new. And it's like saying, give up your old wine. God has something better for you. And it makes them angry. What God is offering us today, what he is through his word. And this is all we can do as, as preachers of the gospel. All we can do is preach the message of Jesus. And I don't mean just about him. I mean the, the message that Jesus preached. The Bible tells us that when the Holy Spirit comes and opens your eyes to the glory of the gospel, it's as though he causes the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in your hearts. And then you see the glory of Christ in such a way that you would leave everything and follow him. 
Whatever you have to leave in order to follow Christ, you're willing to do that because you've had a taste of the new. You know that, that proverb, the, the uh, psalm that says, taste and see that the Lord is good? Peter quotes that in 1 Peter 2, but he says, here's the problem with us as Christians. We can eat so much spiritual junk food that we're no longer hungry for the things of God. And so he actually tells you to strip all these things off, and he has a whole list of things we should stop doing in order to have a real hunger for the reality of Christ. The message of Christ is with authority and power. It's life-changing. It turns people's worlds upside down. And you know what? I have learned this over time, that you can't preach the glory of Christ unless you have been impacted by it. And neither can you. You are ambassadors of Christ. You know that, right? Because you know the Scripture says that. Every believer is an ambassador of Christ. And you're to appeal to men to be reconciled with God through faith in Christ. But you cannot communicate that message if it, hasn't, if it, hasn't, if it doesn't stun you, if it doesn't fill your heart with an awareness of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so that's what I pray today for us, that Christ will do that very thing. I love what the Gideons do in uh, getting the Word of God out all over the world, all over the world. How many countries was that? 200 countries disseminating just the Word of God, throwing it at people. That's really a great story. But the Word of God will change your life. I've never talked to a person who says, yeah, I just find the Bible boring, and I can't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I say, well, tell me how you read it. How often do you read it? Oh, I don't read it. I just find it boring. Oh, you find it boring thinking about reading it. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to pierce the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and it lays you bare before him to whom you must give an account. So it's uncomfortable at times. But it's also God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Get in the Word and listen to the message of Jesus. Uh, read the Gospels again and pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Try to figure out why are, why are his listeners so angry with him at times? And why are others totally transformed by what he says? I'm going to close in prayer, so I'm going to have you stand because I've gone too long. So I'll have you stand, I'll close in prayer. I want to pray for you. Our Father, we bow right now before you, the Almighty God, who has given us life. You've blessed us with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Oh God, I pray, enrich our lives with the Word of God, the message of Christ, so that it's always on our lips. We always turn to it because it is the answer, and it is the power and authority of Christ being manifest in our lives. I pray that you'd help us to make the adjustments in our lives that we need to in order to live under the authority and power of Christ so that we can see life-changing effects of the Word of Christ in our own lives. We thank you that we could gather today in the name of Christ, and we pray that your Word would penetrate our hearts 
Open our eyes and let us see Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.